Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome back to the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. Today, we are so happy to have Barbara DeVries Gordon here. I will read her bio in a second. There is a lot to say about Barbara and her career. I had the pleasure of meeting Barbara very casually recently at a book launch uh, that she was hosting near me in the Catskills area of uh, sort of upstate, semi-upstate New York. And I have her beautiful book on my coffee table. Um, But as soon as I heard a little bit of Barbara's story and background, I was like, oh my God, we have to get her on the podcast because the career journey is just so interesting and inspiring. So Barbara, we're so happy to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Amazing. Well, before we dive in, I'm going to read your illustrious bio. (laughs) Barbara DeVries is a creative director, designer, and bookmaker. After studying design at the Royal College of Art in London, she had her own critically acclaimed fashion label in the UK before moving to New York in the late 80s. In 1991, she created and launched the CK Collections at Calvin Klein. No big deal. (laughs) Barbara subsequently started her own fashion company with namesake collections in the US and Japan. In 2008, she co-founded Gordon DeVries Studio and has since produced, designed, photographed, and written books on design, architecture, fashion, and lifestyle. Barbara has been a passionate anti-plastic pollution activist since 2005 and uses art, design, and education to raise awareness of this very urgent environmental issue. Her most recent books, Coming Home, Modern Rustic Creative Living in Dutch Interiors, and Living Upriver, Artful Homes, Idyllic Lives, which is the book on my table, feature creative, unique homes that reflect the sustainable lifestyles of their owners. She lives in Milford, Pennsylvania, and is working on her next book, Catastrophic Beauty, From Art to Activism, The History of the Plastic Pollution Movement. Woo! Well, Barbara, <laughs> it's the first time I've suddenly heard someone else read out that title. Maybe I need to shorten it a bit. No way. Not at <laughs> all. Keep it big and proud of all that you have created. So you've had obviously such an incredibly interesting and diverse career. Before we dive into your professional story, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your upbringing and where that spark of curiosity, creativity, exploration, where that all kind of began for you? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and I had a rather complicated, very early childhood, which I'm kind of grateful for because at a very early age, I just kind of disappeared into being creative by myself. So I love to just draw and make things, sit in the sandbox, bake castles. I think that started at an incredibly early age, and that made me happy. So whatever was happening around me, 
that became my kind of safe, happy place. And then much later, so that, that creativity stayed, but I also think that much later when I was like 10 or 12, I started making things that I could sell like jewelry and then I started making belts and then that became clothes and through the clothes I started making friends because people wanted me to make clothes for them so the cute boys in class were in a band wanted me to make their satin pants and you know so that was another kind of next step in this kind of how creativity helps me kind of become more of a complete person um, and then at very early age, I wanted to be a fashion designer because clearly that was working. My mother was also very much into clothes and she mm. praised me a lot for, for making clothes and, and was always one of my, uh, I was always one of her favorite designers. So, you know, <laughs> I kind of made it, I didn't make clothes for her, but it was great that, you know, it was great for her and great for me that we, that she wore my clothes and I liked making clothes. So then, yeah, that, so that was always my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Become a fashion designer. Well, so I know you started your career as a model, which obviously sounds so glamorous and exciting, but how, what was that actually like for you? Was that sort of a means to an end? Was it always like a strategy to be able to get into the design world? How did that, uh, how did it start? And what was it like being a model in those days? I don't think which 15 year old has a strategy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Business plan, a five year plan. I certainly didn't have that. Um, It was, it was a way to make enough money initially to buy fabrics to make more clothes and make small collections and stuff. So in that way, it was very much a means to an end. And then as soon as I graduated from high school, I wanted to leave the Netherlands. It felt small. You know, I I just wanted to get away. And modeling was a way to get out. So first I went to Paris. That was a disaster, which I actually wrote a book about called Stupid Model. And then the second half of that year, so after I came back from Paris, I was asked to do a um, a trip to Australia, which started disastrously, but ended I had to stay because my ticket, I couldn't get back. So I joined a modeling agency and that's where my modeling career kind of took off or it did take off, but it was Australia. So it wasn't really such a big deal, but I had like a Cosmo cover. I did a lot of fashion shows. So by the time I came back to Europe, I was kind of better schooled in what it was like to be a model. I was a little bit more professional. And again, it, it made good money. So it then paid for my fashion education. So I went to London because I'd always heard that the best fashion colleges in Europe were in London. At the time, that was the case. Now there are some others. So I did four years of fashion. I, did, I skipped a couple of years and then I ended up at the, the Royal College of Art. So I did my fashion education there. And then as soon as I had my, you know, my education, I was offered a job in fashion and I stopped modeling. The only annoying thing always was that you kind of were always asked, I was always asked to try things on or be the fit model as well as the designer. And then you get people saying, well, you design for yourself. So it's not being without its problems. And then the other thing is that, you know, once a model, always a model. People love introducing you as a model. And it's really annoying because I was, what, 21 when I stopped? And there's a big, and I'm glad you're giving me my my entire career, but there's a big chunk in between 21 and now. So, you know, this is the end of the modeling talk. <laughs> no more modeling talk. No more modeling. I'm not a model. <laughs> no. 
Um, so I, I actually started my career as an assistant buyer and Calvin Klein was one of the lines that I bought. And so I understand how difficult that industry can be. Um, and I appreciate having your own line, dealing with the retailers, just how cutthroat financially it can get. And so I know that you didn't have a business plan when you were 15, totally understandable. Maybe you had a little bit more of one when you eventually launched your own line. So what did that look like? How did you, you know, get your line off the ground, especially in an industry that's not cheap to play in? No. Well, I first saw I had a, a, a job after graduating from, from a college for, I think, about a year, a year and a half. And during that time, I was making clothes for other people. And then I had a friend who was the assistant to Faye Dunaway. I don't know if that means anything to you guys. Yes, yeah, some people don't know that name anymore. But she had her own boutique in Santa Monica. And he asked me to create a collection for that boutique. So that overnight I had a, and even then that was important. I had a celebrity name attached to the collection I made. And so that got me some press. And then I, yeah. And then it just kind of went from there. I had a little inheritance from my father. Not a lot, but my father died when I was very little. So I think I must have, I don't remember much of that, but I must have used some of that to create those collections and sell them and it worked, but then it didn't work. You know, it works for a while. Then you get so big and that's the formula in the business, right? You sell 10 things at $10, you have $100. The next season you need to make for $500 and suddenly you're up to half a million and you can't finance it. So that's where it became difficult and I had to bring in um, partners and, and backers and all that kind of thing. And then you start to work kind of with and for them. And in 1986, that ended up not working out and I came to the United States. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so when you came to the United States, I would assume that's when you landed the job at Calvin Klein. More or less, yeah. More or less, right? Probably years in between. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a huge accomplishment and, you know, a very household name. How did that transition come about from having your own label to working for Calvin Klein? And kind of do you consider that your big break or do you consider kind of a different type of transition point in your career? Well, in from, from some perspectives, obviously, it is a big break. And I'm sure that from the outside, it looks like that a big break. From the inside, sometimes things are a little different, but it definitely was, it was a big, yeah, it was a big transition because especially from when I came to London, I worked for Ann Taylor for a while where I learned about American merchandising and marketing, which I knew nothing about. And that was a really good education because then there they told me, okay, for next summer, we need 10 pairs of pants, five tops, seven jackets. We need linen, we need wool, we need... So they gave you a real structure to work with. And I hadn't done that before. I just did whatever, you know, and was inspired me. And it was like, this inspired explosion in that whole period in London from 80 to 86, you know, it was really inspired explosion. I'm so glad I had that. So then it became more serious, basically. And I think through that education and Taylor, I worked for a company called Tweeds for a couple of years. Then Calvin headhunted me um, to start a collection that would compete with DKNY. So he liked what Donna had with DKNY. She had her designer collection, but then she made all her money with the game why. So he he was kind of a you know a bit jealous of that. He wanted that. And when Calvin wants something, he gets it. It took a while because there were like two design directors before me and it didn't quite work out. But then when I came, I guess everything was kind of 
it was one of those right timing kind of, you know, moments in your career where it all comes together, but not just in my career, but I think for Calvin too, because at that point he'd been just doing his collection. He wasn't, the money all came from perfumes and the underwear, and he needed something to give him that little lift, that little boost. And everything was becoming much younger, and he was still working, really designing for older, kind of chic career women. But they'd all grown up. They were in their 40s, and there was this kind of, you know, niche happening that, that Donna had plugged into um, of people in their mid-20s to, you know, through their 30s, young career, yuppies, they were called at the time, in New York. So that's what we ended up designing for. And I was allowed to pick, because I was head of design, the VP of design, I picked a team around me and I just picked, you know, I'm not saying it's so great, I picked it, but it was just a great team. <laughs> I just, I got together a really great team. You should and take I, credit for it. Yeah. And I think the key to, and this I'll take, to, I'm not take credit for, but I really urge people to be confident enough to pick great people around you that are good or sometimes even better than you are. I mean, I had one designer who I went to college with who was always the star designer, and she was a better designer than me. Together, we completed each other because I was good at more practical things and the overview and, you know, just other things. I was, But she was a brilliant designer, and I had a brilliant knitwear designer. And so the team was really, really good. Calvin actually ended up pinching the knitwear designer for his collection, which was really upsetting. <laughs> That's when you know your product. Because she wanted to design for the collection and not for CK, ideally. So, but that's the, so it was a really great team. And then the advertising team with, with uh, Neil Craft was really good. And Jane did mark merchandising and yeah, merchandising. She was really good. She came from Barney's. So the whole, the whole team was just, you know, oh, vibrant with, with, with talent. And we didn't know it at the time that what we were doing, that was 30 years on, that ad that just came out with, with what's his name? The actor from The Bear who just- Yes. Yeah. yeah. Three it's names. A yeah. It's a copy. It's, it's a copy. Yes. It's yeah. The light is the same. His, his body is the same. His body language is the same. And Neil is going, fuck, oh, you know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You can that we do. Yeah, well, we, we, we definitely do. do. We keep first words in. Um, why can't they come up with something new? And the, the logo is still the same, and the sweatshirts are still the same. The jeans are still halfway down with the under. I mean, to me, it's unbelievable. Thirty years later, that they're still doing the same thing. And if somebody now would have could, if I could go back to me then and said, "Well, how? What a long life that that period had." would have been really great because my self-confidence would have been a little bit better than it was at the time. You know, you're, you're not sure. You never know if what, what you're doing is right or not. But in the history and looking back on that period and that culture, obviously we made we, we created a big shift, which was interesting. It's wild how it not much has changed, right? But, you know, it's they always say the grass is greener on the other side. And you kind of had both experiences as a creative. You had full creative control, could fly by the seat of your pants when you had your own line. And then when you worked for Ann Taylor, and I assume a little bit of Calvin, that they gave you some restraint, right? Like you said, you need to produce 10 jackets, yeah. three pants, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what would you say to kind of anyone, creative or not, who is thinking, ah, it looks so much better over there with what they're doing. What I'm doing is not for me. What, like, how would you respond to that given your experiences kind of on both sides? 
I would say don't look. Yeah. I don't don't think I really ever looked that much because you can make yourself miserable. But of course, now we have a culture through this where you're constantly looking and everything looks greener. So if you're going to look at that, don't look at it with that. And I tell my daughters this, who are more your generation, don't look at it with that perspective because, yeah, it is greener everywhere else, but it doesn't matter. Because all you've got is, is what you're doing. And if you start being influenced by all the other people, you lose yourself. You lose your own identity. So you need to stick to, you need to be true to yourself and true to your talent. And you need quiet time for that. You need to stay away from all the other images. And you need to not be distracted. And, and that's the hard part by, of having your own company is that when you have your own company, you have less time for that. You're not distracted. I was never distracted by the grass is greener, maybe a tiny little percentage. I was distracted by paying the bills, by making sure the people that worked for me were happy, uh, getting returns, unhappy customers, you know, all that kind of thing. That becomes overwhelming when you run your own company. To me, that was the most overwhelming. The grass is greener was never, was never really an issue. And maybe that's cultural. And I think also, if you want to be really good at what you do, you can't go there. Just don't go there. Yeah. What I think is so fascinating about what you said is that you, at that time at CK, right, created something that was truly iconic, right? Who were some of the other kind of like ads or... Because like what, you know, I'm I'm thinking back to like my childhood when CK and the, right. was everything, right? Like the coolest thing. Um, you know, at the time, were you guys aware even a little bit of how iconic what you were creating was? Because I think about all the people with the imposter syndrome and the self-doubt and the this and that, the other. And to be able to look back and be like, wow, we created something iconic that has stood the test of time. Like, did you have any like taste or or like any inkling of that at the time? Well, the hindsight is obviously way more powerful than how you experience it at the time. I think there's several moments that I can think of where maybe that wasn't, I didn't think it in those words, but you know, I mean, let me just tell a few stories. When I had designed the second CK collection, so there was the first collection, which was successful, it was still a little bit tame and a little bit like, you know, not entirely new, like nobody had seen it. But then the second one, we knew we were onto something. It was really great. And everybody worked together. It was spring 93, I think. We said we need an iconic model for this. And I, in my mind, was looking for the next, I don't know, Elle McPherson or, or Cindy or, you know, any of those girls. I was looking for an Amazon, a supermodel. And I'm told myself, so that was quite normal that I, that, I, that I was thinking that way. And we were in Calvin's office sitting on the floor with all the model cards and the collection and, you know, getting ready for the fashion show, like two, three weeks away from the fashion show. And, Pat, and Calvin said, Patrick de Marchelier is sending a new girl in who's really fabulous and he really loves her and feels we should see her. So we were kind of waiting for her. And then this girl walks in, tiny girl walks in, and I'm thinking it's an intern from the ninth floor or something because she's so petite. I mean, she's like literally so (laughs) double zero. And that was Kate. That was Kate Moss. 
And we looked for a portfolio, which was very cute. It had all those Corinne Day photos in it and everything. It was very cute, but cute. But she wasn't an Amazon. So I was like, no, to Calvin, no, no, that's not going to work. She's not going to work. She's too tiny. It's not going to work. He said, make it work. I love her. Patrick loves her. And he was saying he would, but at that time was into uh, Vanessa Parody, Paradise Parodies. Yeah. Yeah. So she looked a bit like her. So he said, make it work. He was more on the pulse than I was because I was the, I was thinking my collection, which was all a size six. Here's Kate, who's just double zero, and all my samples are in. So there's nothing I can do. So I say to Calvin, you know, it's not going to fit. He, and again, he goes, make it work. You know, that's what they do. That's what the boss says, make it work. So then Kate came in to shoot the campaign and tried everything on. And it was all too big, but it kind of, she's so good that it looked good. So initially all those early shoots, these coats are like enormous. Became, everything became boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then we did the fashion. We were styling for the fashion show and she's putting on the jeans and they go zoosh down. They fall off. They fall completely off her. And she's wearing Marks and Spencer's underwear. And it looks really, you know, that sexy underwear. That's the underwear, um, what's her name? Sigourney Weaver wears yeah. it. So that, yeah. that's a sexy moment. So we all going, oh, so maybe that's kind of sexy. And then one of the kids who was, I wasn't going to nightclubs anymore at that point, but she said, well, in the clubs, the guys are, you know, they're wearing their jeans down and they show their Calvin Klein underwear. So then we got all the Calvin Klein underwear brought up from the sixth floor. And we styled everything with the underwear just because Kate was a double zero and my samples were a size six. So that's how that, and it's still people are still wearing it. <laughs> and it's not like it wasn't in the zeitgeist because it was, but we picked up on it. Yeah. And then Alvin is really good at grabbing that and elevating it to a whole different level. And that was one of those moments where I thought, oh yeah. And it was great to see him in action because he then took Marky Mark, who was doing it on stage and. He hired Calvin, I mean, uh, Kate, just for us. He put her on the contract, so she wasn't allowed to work for anybody else. Then we had the big billboards on Times Square. Those were moments where you realized that it had elevated to a level that you never experienced before. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, that was one of those moments. Yeah. And the moment was when, you know, somebody tried to get me out because she wanted my job. That's <laughs> that's, an, that's the name. <laughs> but that also yeah. happens. And that's also yeah. when you know you're successful. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when you were talking about your career at the book launch, and you talked a little bit about what it was like being a woman in that era, working in the fashion industry, working in New York. And did you have kids already at this time or not yet? Yeah. You know, it sounds like hearing you tell the stories about Kate Moss and Marky Mark and all of this, it sounds so glamorous. It sounds so fun. Was it fun? Was it grueling? Was it as glamorous it as it sounds? I think it was fun. I mean, you had that fun, like life, you know, you have yeah. fun days and you have grueling days. Yeah. But I think overall, yeah, I think I did have a sense that I'd, I'd grown into myself at that mm. point. And, and I just met Alistair, so we were just going out. That was a little difficult because obviously when you just fall in love, you want to spend all your time with that person. But I also wanted to spend all my time at Calvin. I would call Alistair Calvin. I would call Calvin <laughs> Alistair. <laughs> like um, Alistair wore Calvin Klein underwear to bed. So that was confusing. <laughs> so it was so incredible. Yeah. 
So what made you finally decide to leave Calvin or what were the circumstances under which you decided to leave and go freelance? I did not Mm. decide. This could be a good story. (laughs) I was the victim of of the Shakespearean court, the royal court. And I was completely naive about that. I had no idea. I was not political. I did not, not really mix with people in the company. I didn't really know what was going on. Yeah, there was somebody who wanted my job. And there was another person who was jealous. And together they and Calvin is very susceptible. He's a Scorpio. He's very, he's very strong, but he's also at the same time very susceptible to, to stories. And so the air got poisoned a little bit against me while I was on sick leave, in which I had an operation. So it was all, you know, it was all, it wasn't cool at all. Yeah. And it happened very quickly. It was literally done within two months, three months. Wow. And then and I was out. Or I, I wasn't out. They wanted me to report to her, and then I didn't want to report to her, and I didn't have to report to her according to my contract. So my lawyer said, you better off financially if you just stand your ground and you leave. And then, I mean, it's this is just the details. So I left. And about three weeks later, after I left, I got a phone call from my lawyer, who just gotten off the phone with David Geffen, who was Calvin's mm-hmm. big backer at the time, to see if I would come back. Mm. By, by that time, I'd had freedom. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and I, there was no way. I, you know, I had lunch at home and I could go yeah. and park rides along the canal. And, you know, I yeah. just, we were living in Rocky Hill in New Jersey at the time, a beautiful place. We just converted it. And I was with Alistair full time and I wanted kids. So, you know, I was having a good time. So yeah. I didn't go back. I really didn't go back. And at the, but the other thing, good, good thing that happened was that literally the evening that I left, really fast afterwards, the Japanese company called um, Kashiyama called me up and asked if I wanted my own collection and that they would back me initially in Japan and then also in the United States. So why not, right? Yeah. Well, so I was just ready to move on. Yeah. What I what I love about this story and what I think is helpful for people listening is like there is a there is a world where you could have held on to anger and bitterness of that for your whole life. And people do that. Right. People yes. hold yeah. on to their stories of scorn and, oh, they they did me dirty and whatever. Um, or you can, you know, obviously, I'm sure at the time it wasn't like, yay, I'm so happy this is happening. But the ability to um, work with what life is putting in front of you in in your career and knowing that, hey, you know, that 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 things are going to shift and things are going to change. And and that's also where opportunity. I mean, for you, it was very like very quick. Right. Sometimes it's not that quick. Sometimes it's, you know, you have a little you have a little fallow period before something pops off. But I I do think, you know, um, to know that out of something bad, right? Out of something hard, out of something challenging, everything can kind of flow from there. I think that's- It's always a mess. I mean, again, you know, I have three young daughters who are in their 20s and the two of them are the twins. They're dealing with those very early days of a career. The oldest one is kind of mid-career, beginning mid-career. So she's making changes right now. And yeah, I really can see very objectively in how to- it's more objective as a parent, how you guide them from a bad moment to a better moment, how how you can, uh, when you're doing it yourself, and I never, my mother was definitely not a career woman and, and, and wasn't available in that way, but 
when it, when you're doing it yourself, it's it's really all hindsight that creates the narrative, right? You're not in the narrative creating it. It's it's the other way around. So I can I didn't walk down 39th Street for years for because I was afraid to bump into the people that worked at Calvin because it had been traumatic. So there's no way that you can gloss over the traumatic experience. But your life goes on too. So there were more aspects of it that were really difficult. And then, you know, I lost a lot of friends, people that were afraid to talk to me because of, you know, I ended up suing him. I had to. Um, so they wouldn't talk to me. So it, it, was, it was really nasty. But that was only one element of my life that's going on. At the same time, you know, all the other things were happening. And then when I had Iona, my, my first daughter, I, of course, started the children's wear company. Who doesn't? I mean, you're a fashion designer which is fun as long as they're little. Then I had twins and then I closed it because that was too much doing everything that I did. But yeah, so life goes on. You have to just realize you can't fight it. I mean, is that merrily, merrily, merrily down the stream? You have to go with that philosophy because if you're going to start rolling backwards, you're only going to get exhausted and unhappy. So you don't really have a choice. Yeah. In moments like that, because I'm sure there have been others since since that time, what tools or practices do you lean into to help you continue rolling down the stream, merrily or not? Um, I think it's in my personality to always be excited about something. But I've had moments where that's been difficult. The hardest thing was moving to Miami. But New Yorkers from having lived in, you know, in Paris, in 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 London, in New York. Moving to New Jersey was a stretch, but it was still close enough to, but to move from the East Coast to Florida, that was hard for me. It wasn't hard for my husband because he got a job there. It wasn't hard for the girls because the schools were way more exciting there. But for me, I felt like there wasn't, I really had to make my own fun there professionally because there was not a fashion business I wanted to be part of at all, you can imagine. It's a little bit bikinis. There's nothing there. It's like all bikinis and, and you know, sarong kind of yeah. thing. So I had to make it up. But but it also allowed me to spend a lot more time on the plastic pollution um, activism. And so I did do some amazing, looking back on it, I think, oh, God, why, why am I, was I so upset about Miami? Because I, that's that was amazing what happened with that. But it didn't film all my time. So I, I had moments that I, you know, and I wrote the model book. So I did plenty, but I was I was a little lost then. There was just no context. I think that's what it was, right? Context is really important. And the context wasn't there. So I had to invent it all myself. And we started publishing books together. So that became that then became my my real context became the making books. And that's what I'm still doing. But I still, there's still, since then, there's still a part of me that wants more. <laughs> and that must be missing just that, you know, in your 30s and 40s, that real drive for for success and what the fashion business, the excitement the fashion business brings with it that is hard to find in other businesses. So you mentioned that you started publishing books, right? And I, I know that you still want more, but I imagine that, you know, starting to become a book publisher kind of scratched a different creative itch than fashion and maybe yes. inched you closer to that more that you're after. So can you kind of talk to 
how to scratch those different creative itches, right? I know I deeply resonate with what you said, wanting more. I feel like I'm always trying new things. Amanda, I feel like you're more of this, it's just like three's company on this call. So, <laughs> Ladies who want more. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, maybe we haven't had enough over the ages, right? So we're trying yes, to make it up for past generations. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you figure out what to do next? How did you figure out I'm going to go from fashion to book publishing to focusing on plastics pollution? Yeah. Well, again, it's not, you know, there's not the day where you make that decision. It's just, again, you're going down the stream. Um, the, the two things, right? The, so the plastic pollution I was already involved in um, because I first saw the plastic and started working with it in 2005. So it was pretty early on when really there wasn't, there wasn't a... Uh, you know, you Googled it and it wasn't there. There was just no awareness of it. People that went to the beach and saw it were aware of it, and that was about it. So I started working with that pretty early. Um, and then when I went to Miami, that was starting 2009, which is now I'm doing this book. I see that in 2009, a lot of people started to engage with it, a lot of artists and stuff. So that's interesting to see that that, that was really the year that some critical mass was starting to develop. Um, so... By 2009, we were, I had a big, we had a big garage where I could work. Barney's came to me and wanted me to embellish 750 t-shirts with beach plastic particles, which you wouldn't do now because now we know how, how toxic it is. We didn't know that at the time. It was so, yay, this is a great material, a great new material, which now it's kind of embarrassing to even admit to that. So we did. I did that, and that was great, and that got press, press, and everything else. Folk did like plastic, fantastic. Oops, <laughs> it's that hindsight. It's that hindsight thing. <laughs> also, but that's what the book is also about. The book I'm doing now is also about if we hadn't had that, we wouldn't have the global consciousness that we have now. So we had to have the art and the beauty to engage people with the problem, because beauty is what engages people with issues. So it's it's very much two sides of this of the same narrative, um, and so that's what I was doing, and that kind of you know had its own energy and its own kind of flow, like the the waves onto the beach. There was always something. I did a TED talk. I was in a movie. I I did talks all over Miami. I was doing a lot of uh, workshops with kids in the Bahamas, eventually in Scotland and other places. So that was nice. It wasn't constant but it was really and it and I never really pursued it very hard but it always kind of came back to me so that was a great thing to be part of and I liked being part of that movement which became a much bigger movement between 2010 and, and 2020 um and then the bookmaking really came because my husband is a writer and was made producing I was not producing books was making books was writing books and making books and it was somebody asked us, an architect asked us to make a book together. So that was our first book. And I designed it and kind of produced it. So put all the elements together and then got the publisher and they they printed it and put it out. And then we did another one. Then we did the history of Bell Harbor shops of all things. It was actually a great book because it kind of became the history of Miami Beach, early Miami Beach. So that's a really nice book, big book. And as I was doing that, it was always... And I think I can talk about this because this is clearly a women's program. <laughs> but it was always my husband's name that was on the books, on the, on the cover. And I felt that I was doing at least 75% of the work. And I was getting no credit. 
So I thought, well, in that case, I have, and I couldn't fight it because it's the author that's on the book, and it's again a pretty male-driven industry still. So I thought, well, in that case, if I really want that, I need to make my own books with my where I can say, okay. And then, of course, I went and did the whole thing. I did the photography, I wrote it, and I produced it, and then I handed it over to Rizzoli, and they put it out. So I was very driven by, with those two last books, with by having to prove myself that I could do it as an individual and not be seen as be doing it kind of on my husband's back. So yeah. Just, that's an expression, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I have your. I wish I should have brought it up here to to show, but I have your living r- up river. But I have it. Coffee table. <laughs> oh, it's right on my coffee table. So if anyone comes over, it's the first thing they see, first thing they look at. <laughs> and it's such a. I'm going to tell you what I love about the book, but then I want you to talk a little bit about the inspiration behind it. But um, for those that don't have it, th- this living up river book, <laughs> it is. It's interiors, right? It's people's homes. It's it's architecture. But what you the way you described it at your book launch was it is um, inspirational, not aspirational, right? So there there are homes. Some homes in there are probably you know very expensive, you know, designer kitchen and whatnot. But then there's other houses in there that are more like lovely cottages or, you know, small homes where everything is curated from, you know, the the different little flea markets and things. It's not right. all, oh, gosh, you know, name name designer, architect here and this, that, right. and the other. Well, none at all, really. Right. Yeah. I don't think there's any. No. Yeah. And so for me, you know, I just moved into my home upriver and I went to the the, the book launch for inspiration and was so pleased that I was not um, intimidated or, you know, I didn't feel like, oh, well, I'll put this aside for, you know, when we strike it rich, right? No, it's like, no, I can seek inspiration uh, from this. So talk a little bit about what inspired this book in particular, because it has such a lovely origin story. Yeah. Well, before that, I did the Dutch book, which is called Right, right, right. Which, where I, I really approached similar people um and and that had a lot to do with having left the netherlands and then coming back so many decades later with my daughters who were going to college there and seeing it through their eyes and and realizing that obviously there's an enormous amount going on in dutch design but how did that translate in the way people live in their homes um so my initial that i kind of what's the word wet my appetite sharpened my teeth on that book and it's similar. It's more colorful. It's a little bit more quirky. The interiors, because Dutch design is a bit more quirky, a little bit more playful, um, a little bit more colorful. So I did that book, and then I was finishing up that book at the, the beginning of COVID. Um, and then it goes to the printer, and you don't see anything or hear anything for several months. And then you do the promotion, and the promotion was just as we were allowed out again. So in that period, I had to come up with the next book. And it, we were in lockdown and my daughters were here and, and we were just all creatively living here. They're all in creative professions. We had a big house, which was great. And I was like everybody else on Instagram a lot and was maybe was looking for interesting spaces or maybe they were coming to me because of what I was doing. Anyway, I started to notice a, uh, a pattern locally and also through, I, I have to cut back to, I, there was Mildred's Lane. Mildred's Lane is um, a, a kind of an artist's compound village run by um, J. Morgan Pewers. 
And she's like our best friend. And we went there every Saturday outside throughout COVID. So I think I was just kind of living that as well. And she has all these, she's in the book. She has all these little houses all over the compound and her own interiors are amazing. She has the most amazing taste. She's very embracing of her community and has created her own community. So I think that may have been an underlying inspiration. And then I was just noticing that, you know, that wasn't the only place. There were other people doing great things, building community, sometimes because of COVID. So they would have like, I don't know, a room over the garage and they would have friends from the city and they would say, come and stay. And then the friends would come and stay and would want their own place. And so like we know, so many people were buying houses sight unseen. They would buy a house on 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 Zoom or whatever, you know, from somebody's the, the real estate agent agent's um, telephone. So it felt like something was brewing and building. And then there was also a lot of creativity was coming out of it. And I think I picked up on all those elements so that when we were allowed out, I wanted to sort out some of those people and did a, did test shoots a few, like Audrey's farmhouse. I did a, a test shoot there. Homestead, I think I did a test shoot with them. Oh no, their house wasn't ready yet. Well, anyway, there were enough people to go in and so then I put that together and proposed it to Rizzoli. And they said they said yes. And then I had to go back and shoot all these houses. So that process is about two years from the idea to when you actually have it in your hands. And are you self so I know you went to school for fashion, but how did you learn how to shoot create books and shoot photography? Or did you sort of just study it and t- teach yourself, right? Because you know, there's a difference between like, oh, I can take a photo of something and like I can create a Rizzoli book, right? That's a big deal. Yeah, I was, I think throughout I've had, it, it's about having an eye. Um, and I think I was lucky enough to be given a good eye. My father was an architect and my mother was for a short, she wasn't really career driven, but was for a short time a, a photographer herself. So if it's in in the genes, then then it it might come from that. Um, and then I started making things. And obviously, being a fashion designer, you're always looking at what it will look like on someone else, what it will look like in a photograph, how somebody is wearing it. You're doing fashion shows. It's all very visually driven. So it's not like it was a whole new thing for me to be looking at things, to really look at things. And then when I started making the books with with my husband. We were doing architecture and lifestyle books. So we we mainly had architects come to us and say, will you make a book about our, our uh, practice? Um, and in order to do that, we had to hire a photographer. So we had our own photographer who I had to assist because the budget was never big enough for that photographer to have an assistant with them. So I became kind of the assistant photographer for about three years while we were shooting these books. So I think that really helped me hone looking at rooms and making sure that, you know, that the vase is in the right place, that there aren't some old socks lying in a fruit bowl, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> which happens. Or you can, nowadays you can all take them out with Photoshop, but, you know, you try not to. And how to really divide up you know, the, the the balance of a room where you have negative space. And, you know, I learned all that from working with this photographer. And he was actually the one who was supposed to shoot my Dutch book. 
And I had him booked and all the houses were booked. Oh, shoot, the whole shoot was booked. And he must have gotten a really well-paying job. I don't really know what happened, but he bailed at the last minute. And But he said, you can do it. You just go and rent this camera, this lens, this tripod, and just do it. You can do it. And I had no choice. So the first book, the Dutch book, I shot my, I was forced to shoot myself. And, you know, it, it came out pretty good. I now see the mistakes that I made, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's a good looking book. Eventually became, you know, I was confident enough to do that. And then with the next book, it, it wasn't really, I just wanted to be better. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I bought a better lens, I bought a better camera, and I really, really pushed myself to to really get it right that time. So yeah. that's how that happened. I love that so much, and it reminds me what's what's the movie uh, Elle Woods, which is like what? Like it's hard. Like the the movie where she goes to Harvard and legally blonde. Oh, sorry. Oh my <laughs> god! In the movie Legally Blonde, she goes to right. Harvard Law School, becomes a lawyer, and people are like, "What?" She's like. What? Like, it's hard. It's like, you know, for you to go from, you know, kind of self-taught to like, you know, it's just, it's very, I think it's, it, we live in a world where people are often hindered by, I don't have this specific credential. And I think, you know, overwhelmingly women, uh, right. men will be like, I could do this. Right. Whereas women will yeah. be like, I don't have the exact. Too much so. <laughs> too much so. Right. We, but we, as women often don't, we, if we don't have the exact credential yeah. or the exact expertise, we're like, oh no, I need to hire somebody. But just showing that like, Hey, I mean, obviously you have to have an eye. You can't, you, not everybody can do it, but if you're creative and you want to turn, you know, 20 degrees to the left, you probably can just try, you know, just, just right. give it a shot and give yourself that chance. I love that so much. Well, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about not looking all around you, right? That you were given a camera, you were creating a book, you could have looked at all the amazing photographers who've been doing this for 30 years and said, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to pick up this camera. But you worked with what you had where you were and you created a product that you were really proud of at the time and sounds like you still are really proud of and only got better from there. And I think so many people are intimidated to even attempt to do something because they're they're worried that they won't be able to do it to the extent that those with years and years of experience. But I think the only way that you become an expert at something is to embrace being a beginner at something. And, 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 yeah, and, to, and to just do it. And you fail too. I mean, you fall on your face, but that shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't stop you. Yeah. I, I do I do think that generally generationally it's harder now but it's also easier in some ways because you have a broader reach so it's easier but because there's there appear you're just so aware of your competition it's harder that's for sure i also think that i was i wasn't lucky but i was really lucky in having such a difficult early childhood that i was forced to be on my own for a certain period of time so i wasn't in that time I really learned not to depend on other people. I was independent by the time I was three, four years old. And that's really helped me, you know? I mean, maybe me, that's really helped. I can't advocate it. I'm not saying, you know, put your kid outside. <laughs> I was three years old. But it helped. It so happened to help me. And I think at that point, I was like, other people? Who needs them? I was three when that happened to me. And then throughout school, it was kind of reinforced because I was always the odd kid out. I was never the popular kid, far from it. 
So I learned to just be okay on my own. And I think that's that's just being an asset or I've made it an asset, whatever you, however you want to call it. And I think that's it. also in schools, it was different then because now I see, and I see it in my daughters again, you know, their early childhood was very much about sharing, 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 and everything you did, you had to take other kids and feelings into account. And, and that's all great. And it makes for much nicer human beings. But I also think it makes it a little harder to keep things to yourself, to keep an idea to yourself, to develop it for yourself, to kind of not have that boundary between where you begin and somebody else ends kind of thing. Yeah. So speaking of boundaries, we live in a world that's very driven by social media and boundaries. What are they? So do you have... And they're scary too. Is you you post something and you get these nasty remarks. Oh, it's there are all these people out there that all they want to do is be nasty because they stand up and they're nasty. Yeah. You can't yeah. take it seriously. You just can't. Yeah. So, so, I mean, what advice do you have for young creatives or entrepreneurs or anyone who has an idea that they want to get off the ground today who's trying to make it in this world where everyone has an opinion and there are very little boundaries and everything is so visible? Create, create your own bubble, I think. Create your own bubble. If you're confident enough to about your talent and your idea and your passion, create a bubble around it and protect the hell out of it and just grow it like you're growing a little plant. You know, if you grow a little plant, then you need to water that little plant. You can't take your water everywhere else. You need to grow that little plant and just see it like that. It's when you have a child, you know, when you're pregnant, you can't, there's a lot you can't do because you're pregnant. You're making a child. That's your talent is the same thing. It's this, it belongs to you. You need to grow it. You need to feed it. You need to protect it. You need to find a place for it and then just see what happens. But always protect it, protect it, protect it, protect it. Oh, I love okay. that. I love <laughs> that advice. Um, and Barbara, before we get into our, our closing questions that we always ask anyone, I do want to ask you if you could leave our audience with one piece of advice, and I'm sure it's hard to choose one, for helping reduce plastics waste, plastics pollution, anything kind of related to that really important, critical work that you do? Well, it's, it, it is all about how much we consume. So it's not just plastic, but everything we consume is wrapped in plastic. So first of all, pick the things that are not wrapped in plastic. So if you go to the supermarket and you have an option between a can and a and a plastic bottle, pick the can. I mean, that's just simple stuff, right? Make sure you have your your recyclable bags with you. Um, and then, you know, we're aware of a lot of things that now that we used didn't used to be aware of that we can actually reduce. Um there are a lot of places where you can buy your detergents online that they ship them in a box or they're refills, you know, all that kind of stuff. Look into that. That's a little bit more complicated, but look into that. And then as far as everything else, just less, just buy less. If you have the option between a banana wrapped in plastic and a banana that not, that buy the one that's not in plastic. You know, it, you do have the choice. We tend to just kind of do what we do. I still try to tell, teach my husband to bring the plastic, the recyclable, the recycled bags from the back of the car to the supermarket. Very hard to re-educate, but you have to re-educate yourself in that. 
And it's the same with clothing, you know, and I, I, your generation is amazingly good at this. Don't buy new clothes all the time. You know, there's amazing secondhand stuff out there and anything else that you can buy a second. And the book, the second book, the Living Up River book is very much about using things that already exist. So if we can very slowly shrink, and that's actually not happening. I mean, all the economies are expanding and consumption is is expanding. But I hope that there is like with the awareness of plastic, which was nobody was aware of in 2005, and now everybody's aware of it, that there has to, there is that pebble in the pond and the ripples will. And I hope that 10, 20 years from now, we are consuming so much less. So yeah, consume less and consume with care and thought. Yeah. And I love what you say about the, how re-educating is tough. I have a three and a half year old and an eight year old, and it is amazing how they absorb and regurgitate and repeat and follow the things that you say and the things more importantly that you do. So, yeah. you know, I think for us as, as parents or people that have interaction with the young people, right? Re-educating Educating is a lot easier than re-educating. Yes. Um, and sometimes, you know, the, the kids do better than the than the grown-ups do. So <laughs> Yeah, and my daughters they barely buy buy new things. They're yeah. only buying second. Yeah. 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 They 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 often point it out to me. Yeah. Because I I'm re-educating. <laughs> yeah. Just how they live. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have just two sort of uh quick questions that we always ask to kind of wrap up the show. So the first question is, how do you define success? Well, the success, like you feel that you are successful, and then their success is as how people perceive you, right? So I think I'll talk about both. So success and how people perceive you is is actually very different from how you perceive it yourself. So success, how people perceive you, tends to be what your kids achieve, what you've achieved, what your husband does, where you live, what kind of car you drive. And it's that perception thing and that compare how where people compare you. I think real success is where you stand in your community and who you are to the people in your community. And if you inspire and make people happy. And that takes me back to where I feel successful is when you say my book inspires, that that make, that makes me happy. That and that is a sense of success is success is so tied into so many other things, but happy, what makes you happy, fulfilled, like what you did makes an impact. I guess that's success, right? When what you did makes an impact on other people in a positive way and then and then spreads out as a as a positive reaction in a community and in society. I guess that's what success would be. Yeah. I have to plow my way through to get there. <laughs> no, I, I think that's how it works, right? It's it's a yeah. big question. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that our listeners have fallen in love with you and your work as much as I did when I met you. So where can they find you? If listeners want to find you, your work, your writing, where where can they go? Where Where do you exist out there in the world? My books are kind of a big part of me. So they, they exist in in bookstores, indie bookstores, um, obviously on Amazon. If you buy on Amazon, you have to leave me a good review. Otherwise, you're not allowed to buy on Amazon. <laughs> the only thing I get out of it. <laughs> and then you sell more books. Yeah. Um, and so that's the books. Yeah, I have them on Instagram, obviously, but with Living Up River and with my under my name, Barbara DeVries. Yeah, those places, I guess. Google, Google I have a website. <laughs> <laughs> the Google. 
I have a website, barbadefries.net, where you can really see my career and my the, all the different projects I've worked on. Um, it's a portfolio website. It's more professional, but this, you know, that's all there. Yeah, I guess. And I live in Milford, Pennsylvania, but I'm not getting <laughs> my address. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come visit you. Well, so yeah. you're asking for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Pennsylvania girl. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah. Well, Barbara, thank you so, so much. This was such thank an amazing you. conversation. It was such a pleasure to get uh, to spend time yeah, in your company you. again. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And we will be looking forward to sharing this with our community. Great. Thanks. Take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Full Plate, Full Cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate, Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Plate, Full Cup. That's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E-F-U-L-L-C-U-P or online at www.fullplatefullcup.com, www.fullplatefullcup.com.